Hi, thanks. Uh, welcome to uh, the end of day one of FACT Spring 2019. It, the titles seem to continue to get longer and longer, right? Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. We're, um, we're all a bit baked, probably, but uh, thank you for showing up to uh, the second panel of the day with, um, let's see what I've got first. I think I did, yeah, this one first. The Creative Powerhouse and comics phenomenon, right? <laughs> Good. See, see what I did with the colors? It is. Uh, it's it's it Kevin Eastman. <laughs> Requires oh. no intro. Yes, enthusiasm. Thank you very much. Thank you for doing that. Thank you so much. Um, so, well, you, um, I, I was, uh, it, it wasn't easy to find questions because um, you, you like to um, present your professional life uh, in, in numerous forums and formats, but uh, I'm going to assume that not, not everyone knows about it, uh, but does know uh, that you are the co-creator of probably the most famous uh, comics and multimedia creation since the 80s? Of yeah. the 80s and every decade. Yeah, I'd say yeah, definitely of the 80s, um, as well as, yeah, I guess I feel like it's... Uh, because we started as an independent publisher, yes. um, so it was probably one of the most successful independent publishers, and and that's always the point when I say it's all your fault. <laughs> <laughs> thank you and thank you. It really uh, flips it back to the fans because yeah. I would not have the greatest job and I'd not be up here if it wasn't for you guys to stand in those crazy lines and come sit at this panel. So thank you very much. Appreciate it. There we go. Yes. <laughs> Um, you've, um, you've always been the most vocal of the, um, the two creators, you and, and Peter Laird. Uh, I guess that's, that's just how you operate. Yeah, you know, it's funny because, you know, growing up, both Peter and I were very similar that we were very, uh, introverted, you know, um, when I was, uh, in, in, uh, grammar school and, and junior high, when I w the term geek back then was not as nice as it is now. <laughs> it was like we were the guys stuck in the corner, you know, that we could have shunned by everybody. It's like, oh, they still read comic books. How dreadful, how awful. Um, so very introverted. And so I feel like when we um, started having some success with the Turtles, we started doing interviews. Pete is even more shy than I am. So one of us sort of had to step up and actually talk so um and i'm a little bit more passionate and a little bit more crazy maybe i don't know so i just started um yeah exactly what, <laughs> so were, I just what were some of the comics you were reading back then in your childhood that's a good question i was um uh read a wide range of things i liked uh, um War comics, uh, Sergeant Rock, Sergeant Fury, World War II comics. I like Western comics. I like my superhero comics of choice were superheroes that were more often more grounded, like uh, Captain America or Batman or Daredevil. I mean, I liked, you know, the, could appreciate the fantastic nature of, say, someone like Superman, but it seemed more of a stretch to imagine that possibility as opposed to someone like, say, Batman that yeah. could train themselves and, and do that. Um, but I had an aunt that was, um, uh, she would uh, take us to church every Sunday, and she thought comics were bad for me, um, the kinds that I was reading. So she would buy me Archie comics. and uh, oh, So the wholesome kind of <laughs> the wholesome stuff. Comic. stuff. <laughs> um, so I was exposed to everything, and I, I enjoyed them all. It was really like, I grew up in a, a very small town in Maine, a farming community too, so I felt like sometimes I was you know, on a planet of my own. Yeah. And so comics, for me, there was, you know, no internet. And we had two stations on the TV that would come in, and only one of them good. Um, yeah. So, in black and white. Because I read somewhere that one of your favorite titles growing up was Commandy by yes, Jack Kirby. And yes. I thought, oh, okay, that's kind of the anthropomorphic animal thing is already sort of present there. And it's cool to see that sort of find its way into... TMNT, of I definitely think there's a direct relationship between uh, Commandy and, and the Turtles. And equally, what was um, interesting was, um, if you guys don't know the Commandy character, uh, it's based on a kind of a Planet, Apes, Planet of the Apes scenario, where um, 
animals ruled the earth and, and, and men were, and, and the human race was more slaves and animals. Um, but the first movie I ever saw in a movie theater was Planet of the Apes. And that was like, you know, I probably was too young to see it, but I just remember my sister wanted to see it and she was older. And so I just remember sitting in the audience going like, what is this? This is cool. But I think um, definitely mutant animals and uh, mutations in general. And I guess it, it, it was in the... Um in the underground comics, uh, furry animals and, and anthropomorphic animals were more present. Uh, you had Fritz the Cat and um, Omaha, yep. uh, Usagi Yojimbo, of course, yep. who uh, became a character. In, uh, yeah, in it was, um, well, that was uh, the fun thing, too, about uh, exposure to comics, which is a good qu um, point, because um, my dad was kind of a a cartoonist, or more of a doodler, which is something he did for his own uh, pleasure, nothing, not for work. And so, but he read underground comic books, so like uh, <coughs> um, Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers, or for the Cat, Zap, um, Zap comics and things. So that's the first exposure I had to that. And what I liked about uh, those kind of comics is there seemed to be more freedom. In most American comics, we had what they call the Comics Code Authority, which was a regulatory system that sort of was designed to keep comic books um, for 12 years old and, and younger. And by the time I was starting to grow out of them, the discovery of <clears throat> underground comics and uh, like Stan Sakai's Yusabi Ojimbo that started the same year we did when we self-published the Turtles, he started the same year. It was really, um, there's a, do you know a comic book called Cerebus, The Aardvark? Yeah. It's a, that was a big influence because that was um, published in 1976. And he was one of the more vocal um, creators' rights, creator ownership, um, own your characters, and, and things like that. And as a creator, and I really gravitated to that, like yeah, having complete and, freedom. And it, because they, they seem uh, that there wasn't, uh, you, you were interviewed by a local paper uh, at the start of the weekend, and they went, what were you smoking to come up with these? Anthropomorphic animals, right? But at the time, you weren't the only one. You're the only one that survived to such um, a, a, a public acclaim. Yes. Uh, but all those other and all those others have sort of forgotten, been forgotten about. But you were part of this. It was. It wasn't weird to see. You know, Disney was Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. Uh, Yep. Which is the same thing, but different. Yeah, but it's all their fault. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you were, buy you were buying the turtles, so... <laughs> no, and thank you. Um, no, but I think we were very lucky that I think when we started self-publishing is around the time a lot of people realized, like, um, you could create your own idea, you could create your own stories, and you could publish through a, a direct market um, that reached um, fans uh, in, in the comic book, neighborhood comic book store. And so a lot of people <coughs> saw that um, gateway and that doorway open. So they all, all of us, a lot of us jumped in and said, this is a, you yeah. know, because, you know, until then, the realization of that you could do that, the only opportunities were Marvel or DC or Archie comics. And, you know, nobody, you know, stacks of rejection letters and you send in lots of submissions and, it's like, ugh, they don't want anything to do and with they, us. They were a lot more house style at the time yes. as well. Yeah, a lot yeah. more exactly house style. Yeah. So how, I think everybody's pretty familiar with the story of how the turtles were born. Did it start with a sketch of Michelangelo and a sort of, sort of as a joke, like what, what's the least likely animal to be proficient at martial arts? Yes. I think that's, so how did it, the TMNT concept sort of, and the storylines or the first story sort of take shape going from that sketch to the first comic book? How did everything sort of come together? It was almost a perfect storm of um, when we did the first sketch and it was a joke and that you said as a, I was a fan of Bruce Lee as a martial artist and I thought if Bruce Lee was an animal, what would be the silliest animal he would be? And so, you know, fast moving martial artist, slow moving turtle was a natural joke when I showed uh, this drawing here. The one that's my hat. This is the first, uh, Michelangelo was the first turtle ever drawn. And so that very quickly evolved into a very humorous exchange of, um, uh, I drew one, he drew one, then I did a sketch with uh, four turtles in pencil um, and had like a little cartoon 
Ninja Turtles logo, um, and when he inked it in, he added Teenage Mutant to the title, and we looked at this and we just said, this is the dumbest thing we've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we, you know, we really couldn't get work anywhere, um, and like we already talked about, self-publishing was a great opportunity. So we said, look, let's try to come up with our own story that tells how these characters came to be. We'll publish it ourselves, and you know, even if we don't sell more than say 100 or 200 copies, we still are working towards our goal to be become a cartoonist, to be storytellers, and comic books. So, um, and so we actually did a little. It's funny to see. Um, opportunities like Kickstarter or Indiegogo or things like that in the States, crowdfunding, because our crowdfunding was my uncle, um, my mom. <laughs> we borrowed a little from each yeah. of them to, to do the first printer. And did, did, did they ever see a return on that? Oh, yes. <laughs> and they were, you know, because they were, you know, as we got more successful, they would remind us about it more frequently. You know, yeah, remember when I lent you that $200? Yes. <laughs> and bless you. Here's five. Yeah, five. Uh, <laughs> um, but um, so you started working on it, um, and uh, as you mentioned, I believe in the um, in the notes in the books as well, people would ask, "But what is it that you do, and what is it that Peter does?" Mm -hmm. And you just go, "Well, we we made this book." But as far as I know, no other creators were working that closely together where you know you'd do the layouts on one pa uh, page and uh, Peter would do the other and then you would do the pencils and he would do the inks or the other way around and you continue to work like that how how did the, it, it seemed uh, especially at first that that came naturally but uh, it, it, uh, if, if I listened to other artists, they would go, well, no, this is my drawing. Nobody can touch it. <laughs> but while you, you sort of um, developed one style with four hands or two heads, as it were. Yep. Yep. No, that was because basically, because we, <clears throat> we both uh, we had different styles, um, you know, and there were some similarities, but there were some very specific, distinctive differences. And so we felt that, um, you know, because we were used to, um, we knew we had a, a bridge to gap there, but we used to seeing. Um, a certain penciler, like Marvel Comics, DC Comics, it was pretty common that they'd have one person would pencil and the other person, another person would ink, so sure. they would get it out on a monthly schedule. <clears throat> and so for us, we said, well, we both want to do both. We both can do both. So let's uh, literally sit um, in the same studio space. And so oftentimes, I would do the breakdowns. So once the story was kind of handwritten out, I would break down panel to panel, page to page, and then we'd start penciling by... I would start penciling on a page and I would hand it to Peter and he would add some penciling to it and hand it back and we'd go back and forth and so we would wait until we um, finished the whole issue in pencil together by making a very conscious effort that I would never pencil a whole page by myself, um, that we needed the cooperation of the two styles. Um, and then once all the pencils were done, then we'd ink it in the same fashion. Like, uh, And it was always funny because we would do this process where when you have a comic book, you have pages that are like uh, um, crowd scene, street scene. It's like kind of the least interesting. And then you'd have a couple pages that had, you know, fighting on it and jumping and leaping and smashing. And, and so we always would race to try to ink, start inking some of the ex more exciting pages. And so after the first two weeks of all the cool panels were done, then it was the rest was like, Drawing in backgrounds, all the buildings and yeah. the treasure. Yeah, where you were your own assistants almost. Because, <laughs> yes. You know, that's like assistant work, uh, yeah. backgrounds. And stuff. Exactly, yeah. like yeah. assistant yeah. work. So we were our own assistants, so Fill, how, filling in the blacks. <laughs> how did writing work on those issues? Did, mm. Would you write it together or would you sort of trade uh, trade storylines or trade ideas? Or A lot of times it was um, the best way that we worked was... Um, um, We'd talk out the idea um, verbally, so it'd sort of, it'd be sort of a mm, maybe a couple of days of brainstorming. Would be like, well, what do you think about this? And maybe in the first part with this, so we'd sort of sketch it out, and then I would make, um, I would hand write out the the basic story beats, and then from the story beats, um, when you start doing the layouts, because the layouts is where you really tell the story. Um, that's when you decide the acting, who's, you know, if you're going to have a front shot, side shot, down shot, who's going to say what. And then with comics, you always try to leave a very interesting panel on the lower right 
because you turn off the page to get, you know. So I would then do the breakdowns and then throughout that, they would set some of the staging differently and some of the um, action beats, um, other ideas might come into play. And so um, it was common in, uh, <clears throat> as what we understood with Marvel comics, as they called it, we call it Marvel style, is that a lot of times like um, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, how they'd work together, is Stan would say, you know, hey, Jack, I'm thinking of a story about a guy that becomes, is bitten by a radioactive spider and blah, 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 blah. And he gives them sort of the broadest strokes, maybe just a simple outline. And then as Jack would do the breakdowns or pencils, um, he'd write dialogue in the, in the panel borders. And so we'd work that. And then Pete would do the final script based on my layouts. And so, so there would be like a full script before yeah, you started drawing? Never a full script. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it was always like... You, you know, had a solid plot to, uh, to mm -hmm. work with. Okay. Just a basic plot. Yeah. And yeah, we never worked from a full script. And, um, and, it was, and that was what was interesting because that was kind of what we didn't, we kind of knew how comics worked, but everybody worked differently because, uh, again, going from underground comic books, we'd have a particular writer um, that was uh, an artist. So they'd write and draw and pencil and ink them all themselves. So there was less collaboration with other artists. In underground, so we sort of had a wide range of, of stuff. So we just and we had no bosses. We were, you know, the publishers, the writers, the inkers. <laughs> so we, you know, cleaned up the office. We packed the boxes and editor. Everything was us. And so, all those mistakes. Like if I don't know if you know, has a funny. I was a kid in English class that I was always drawing instead of paying attention. And so if you look at the early issues of the Turtles, I misspelled Michelangelo. <laughs> That's me. I spell the American, you know, Michael, oh, okay. Angelo, yeah. <laughs> like a Brooklyn pizza shop, as opposed to the wow. correct. You know. uh, th well, th th there were there were other more more funny um, spelling errors, but let's not go into those. <laughs> there were some um, serious ones. <laughs> as you as you progressed, um, you found less time to um, work on the comics themselves. Mm -hmm. um, Enter uh, the the um, other artists that um, worked for Mirage Studios. Mm -hmm. um, did uh, but because you still continue to do um, scripts. Uh, uh, did the collaboration there? What was it? Was it different? Was it similar to how you and Peter first worked? What it was kind of an interesting time because in 1984 we started publishing the uh, the first issues um, of the comics, and that was just Peter and I for so long just doing those together, but by 19, <coughs> um, let me see, probably mid to late 1987, we started working, um, developing the, the, the concept as a cartoon show and a toy. And so Christmas 1987 is when the first cartoon part came out and that was a success. So suddenly by 1988, just you know, less than, well, almost exactly four years after the self-publishing of the first issue, now we were writing, we were working in TV, we were working in licensing, we were working in so many different areas. We saw almost a flip in our schedule where in 1987 we were drawing 90% of the time and doing business work 10% of the time. And almost by the middle of 1988, it was a complete reversal. We were spending 90% of our time managing. When did, when did you first notice when the comic was taking off that you had these opportunities to sort of branch into other media, when did that sort of become a, a reality that, for you guys? Well, the reality, it was basically we had um, different people approached us for the idea and we um, were very guarded and very protective because, um, uh, you know, in the American comic industry, you know, guys like Jack Kirby and so many mentors, so many giants that we stood on the shoulders of that inspired us. When they worked for the companies at that time, it was called work for hire. So anything that they did for the company was owned by the company. So we knew how lucky we were that we had full control over our characters. And so somebody would say, we'll come to Peter and I and think we were a couple of goofballs from the country and said, hey, just sign your rights over to me and I'll make it into toys and movies and mm -hmm. other things. And we were like, no, we're good. We design this as a comic book, we have full control over it, and the only way would allow it to proceed uh, or, or entertain the idea that would be developed into a cartoon show or toys or anything as if we had full say. Um, we had full approval uh, over all the scripts, the look and lightness of the character, what was to be done with them and not to be done with them, but most of all, we wanted to make sure that um, we retained full ownership. So 
And so that was what, so we had three or four agents that approached us in the, like, 87, early 87, before we found an agent that, you know, because they were always like, you know, sign a contract with us for five years and we'll develop this. And we were like, no, we don't need to. And this agent that approached us and he said, you know, five-year contract, blah, blah, blah. And we said, no. And he goes, all right, all right, cut the bullshit. I'll tell you what. I think this is really cool. Just give me 30 days. In 30 days, if I can bring you an option that we can continue to work, give me another 30 days. And then if I can succeed on another step in 30 days, um, we'll continue to working together. And so that, pro that showed us that um, he had as much love and faith in the idea as we did. So that's the person we signed with. And so we were working with him for almost uh, 20 years. And that was the inception of the animated series? Yes, oh, that was the inception okay. of the animated series, the toys and everything. That. So he, he was our uh, um, agent and who guided us through all the development. Like he would actually go out and shop it to a toy. It would present the idea to a toy company. Oh, okay. Like you should come on and do this as a toy and this is why. And uh, the same. And usually the, back in those days, and you know, not, it's not that different now in the States is uh, cartoons often are long commercials for toys I think it was more more direct correlation back in those mm -hmm. days and so um, once you started development with a toy company you started developing with an animation studio and so they both worked hand in hand to mm -hmm. come up with the final look of the characters and what the property would be so. so did you have a lot of input into how the animated series yes. sort of Reimagined the characters. Okay. We had it actually. Yeah. We had a hundred percent say in everything, including you know we came up with the ideas. Uh, for example, like actually Peter came up with the idea for the different colored bandanas because um, you know as a black and white comic book, even the early covers that we did, uh, my paintings all had them had red bandanas, which you know we never thought we needed to uh, differentiate them. Well, they they had their different weapons, of course. Yeah. But so, yeah, it was like, and so when it was in a black and white comic book too, you'd be more like, they'd call each other by name yeah. a lot. Hey, Ralph. So you just knew who they were talking to, so they didn't have to be holding their weapons all the time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Pete came up with the idea when they said, well, let's, you know, because you want a child to buy the all four toys, so let's come up with the different colors uh for the for the for the toys and uh the cartoon characters and then things like the um i guess and apparently they're not very fond of having lots of death and murder murder in saturday morning cartoons <laughs> no so the human foot soldiers they said well, we can't have turtles running around killing humans all saturday morning so we changed them to robots um so then you know once they became robots they could smash and slash them all day long um, we got rid of some of the more dramatic aspects of um, the origin story. But what was unique was we knew very specifically when we were going from the black and white comic books, which were much edgier, we knew those comics were written for an older audience. And when we were working on the cartoon, we knew very specifically those were being done for, a, you know, five, six. Seven. And that's, that's why you partner up. That's around that time that you partner up with uh, Archie yes. for a, a more cartoon-like comic? Yeah. Yep, because most of most of the um, there was two different businesses. It's, it's very similar here, I think. For over the years, it was two different businesses for distributing comic books in the in the United States. So you had um, comic book shops, your neighborhood comic book shop, and that would be direct sales. So that would be the black and white comic books and things like that. And then Archie comic books would be uh, the more kid friendly version that you would see in a, a grocery store or a newsstand. Yeah, newsstand yeah. and yeah. things like that. So yeah. Uh, and, and that's why you didn't do that yourself as right. marriage, because you like to keep everything uh, close to the vest, let's say, but that was a different... Uh, it was a different uh, kind publisher of... Publisher, because it, it had that um, instep. Yes, it had the inroads and in distribution, inroads, because... we well, see, we were very spoiled, too, because um, in, uh, to get technical, in the comic book store sales, it was direct sales, so whatever yeah. was ordered from the comic book, we sold it, it was non-returnable, they paid for them, they sold them or not. In the Archie Comics distribution, it was fully returnable, so they may ship out you know, 100,000 copies of a comic book all over the United States, and they may get 50,000 copies in return, so we didn't wanna do yeah, that, yeah, doesn't it? <laughs> <with that>. yeah, <laughs> scary. <I get> that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, 
uh, it must have been around that time that you looked at um, the wider comic scene and you started Tundra? Yeah, Tundra was a dream that I had um, because I, I um, grew up uh, reading comic books um, and, and followed that path and as the self-publishing grew in the black and white comic books and then around this time too I discovered a Earlier, actually, before we even self-published, I discovered uh, Heavy Metal Magazine, yeah. which is um, based on the <coughs> was a back then in the 70s was a derivative of um, uh, Metal Herlon, um and it had published. Uh, I was fascinated by um, artists like uh, Mobius and uh, Bilal and so many European artists that I'd never heard of before. Um, and because uh, I mentioned earlier that a lot of the comic books in the U.S. had a comics code. They kept comics for a younger audience, while a lot of the European comic books were intended for kids of all ages, if you will. So um, they progress much better with um, more skilled artists and storytelling for older audiences. And it took America, American comics a long time to catch up, probably not until... Um, you know, Watchmen and things like that, where you had, you know, underground comic books and mainstream comic books, and European comic books sort of finally met somewhere in the American opportunity to, to, to do comics for, for older older audiences. So, um, But I love this idea um, that comics were all for all ages, for all age groups. And a lot of my friends that worked in comic books were doing Spider-Man or they were doing comic books that they loved as they were a kid, but they would often tell, you know, after a comic convention would be at a bar um, uh, talking about um, ideas and things we dreamed about doing. And they would often be, you know, I have to draw a Spider-Man every month so I can pay to feed my family, to, to pay my rent or my mortgage. And if I had the opportunity, I would, um, I would do this story that I would be my own idea. And so I founded Tundra just to be that. Um, uh, place that people could bring ideas and I would help them cover the cost to help those those ideas be realized and so we did um, comic books like The Crow, um, From Hell, um, Madman, Cages, Violent Cases, we did a lot of yeah. different stuff. Uh, uh, it, it was, um, it's, it's something because you were, the Tundra was only around for about three years. Yep. So it's three, easily forgotten that a lot of that pre-Vertigo almost, uh, or yep. uh, it's, it's sort of simultaneous with Vertigo, but you know, the yep. dates um, hurt uh, Alan Moore's feelings for the so manyth time, so he had to go somewhere. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, it, it's easy that, to forget that, that you were a part of that, because you know, you're, you're the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles guy, but you were also behind the um, uh, the uh, uh, creator creator <laughs> bill of rights. That's the one. Hmm? Yeah, actually, there was a, the creator bill of rights was very much similar. It was founded around the same time we did Tundra, which was just because um, um, you were having, like you said, there was this whole evolution of um, Vertigo was uh, becoming a thing. But that was still owned by a company that most of their publishing was. Um, you have to give up your rights to work for them. And so we'd have young cartoonists that were growing up and, um, you know, say, hey, we, I want to, you know, self-publish it. All my characters like you're, you did, but um, DC has offered me an opportunity, but they're going to own all my rights or have my rights. So we put out the Creator's Bill of Rights just to make people aware of um, what their rights are. So if you know what your rights are and you decide to give them up, then you at least yeah. knew yeah. what you were giving yeah. up. So we did that. Yeah. Was that some sort of synergy that was in the air when you started Tundra? Because that was sort of around the same time that Image Comics started. Mm -hmm. And if Image Comics started because all those popular Marvel artists were leaving. Was that something that was sort of actively discussed among comics creators? Like we want to do our own thing. Is that yeah. what they... Were attracted to your ideas, or was that something? It was. It was almost like um, I mentioned earlier. This perfect storm of um, exposure to uh, underground comic book publishers, um, European comic book artists and publishers. Manga was becoming popular there, and it was actually much popular in Europe before it became popular in the States. Um, you had a lot of people that um, there was a lot of. Uh, um, activists uh, and a lot of us trying to 
do things like, uh, you know, Jack Kirby, you know, created most of the Marvel Universe and Stanley took credit for everything. He took credit, you know, and Stanley was a man that was a corporate person. He was very creative and he's an awesome uh, salesman. Salesman, yeah. <laughs> thank you. But um, he would take, um, way too often, take full credit for a lot of stuff that um, artists that worked for him yeah. um, came up with these ideas. So there was fights like a lot of guys that even uh, Marvel would keep Jack Kirby's artwork and he would never get his artwork back, which is a big income for artists that, you know, you get your artwork back, you sell sure. it, you can, because sometimes page rates are very low. So there was a full synergy of many, many things, all sort of the perfect storm of ideas um, and freedom and creative ownership and protection of rights. Um, and so, so many things like um, fighting to get Jack's artwork back, image, the best-selling artists from Marvel, leaving Marvel and forming their own company and giving Marvel and DC. Suddenly these guys were selling more books than Marvel and DC. So it was a lot of uh, craziness in, in a positive way, but it was uh, anarchy for a while. Yeah. Like, yeah. I guess it's, it's also like the, the two things of the, the creative and the commercial aspect where yep. the um, now creators, it seems to me, have much more of a, and, and I, I think you and a lot of your contemporaries are to thank for that, have a lot more say in how they are treated and um, what they get in return for what they've done for a company, while at that time it was, well, you, you did all this, you were paid once and that's it, yep. but all the ancillary revenue, you saw nothing. That's right. And that, that's, what, that's the main problem with image at the time, right? Yep. Where um, all the t-shirts and the underoos and so on, <laughs> yeah, they, didn't, uh, they didn't get a dime, but it was still McFarlane artwork on all of those underoos. Exactly, right. Yeah. Um, you also, um, up until I think relatively recently, were the uh, owner or part, or you're still a part owner of uh, Heavy Metal Magazine? Yep, still. No, yeah. I still own, uh, I bought Heavy Metal Magazine in 1990. <clears throat> and I've been, I was publisher. Because you, you had nothing else on your plate, clearly. <laughs> well, that was, uh, you know, around the time that even when I um, merged Tundra with a company called Kitchen Sink Press, was um, I had uh, Heavy Metal Magazine still working on Turtles material, um, uh, Tundra Publishing, and I keep forgetting that um, I wanted to be a, a writer and an artist, and suddenly there was so much time that I was not doing anything. So I focused on like because heavy metal was only a four-person company it was very small because we bought most of the material that we published from mainly from uh, french uh, uh french belgian spanish um italian publishers translated them and put uh, put the material out in the u.s um, south american and so um, it was much more manageable and i enjoyed it much more <coughs> so i spent more of my time on heavy metal and um and going back to drawing uh, more so. And you, you b built that into uh, something uh, for a while that was multimedia as well with, uh, f uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, F-A-double-K, uh, that was you as well, right? Yes, that was, a, it was um, an animated movie that I worked on and produced, which um, turned out, um, in my opinion, quite terrible. Um, <laughs> you know, it was a very difficult process, um, but I... Love so much the original heavy metal movie that came out in 1981. That was, um, again, it was a perfect storm of, you know, uh, they would they brought in uh, Dan O'Bannon who wrote not only Aliens and other movies but wrote for heavy metal. But he'd worked with <coughs> Mobius, like Mobius and uh, Jodorowsky and some of these other guys wrote and did material for different sequences within the heavy metal movie, and so. I didn't want to try to recreate the anthology of the first heavy metal movie, so I did a, a single linear movie, which um, was just a an epic nightmare that turned out horrible. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, so incredibly uh, painful. <laughs> to be uh, blunt, if you've never seen it, don't watch it. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? Yes, it was, yeah, it was, you know, and that was amazing, Is like, um, like the first heavy metal movie was good, but the second heavy metal movie, the soundtrack was, you know, Apartment 26 and Bauhaus and Queens of the Stone Age and System of a Down, it was some pretty, some pretty awesome stuff on there, so, it was, it was, but it was like, yeah, if you want to, yeah, see, 
By the soundtrack, that's what we'll <laughs> Nothing else. <laughs> so, um, but eventually you, uh, and, and I was actually surprised when I was researching this that um, I always figured because of, you know, the, the, the difference in public persona between you and, and Peter Laird that it was first Peter Laird who sold his share in the company, but w it was you that was uh, bought out or, or you sold your... I and, sold uh, mine, yeah. Yeah, and, and you then, that was to pursue other projects? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was um, around this time was when we were working on some, we had a, a number of heavy metal entertainment projects that we were working on. Um, I felt my my heart was, uh, you know, and actually to clarify too, that the turtle business at that time, we were talking probably 1997, 98, 99, there was very little turtle you know, there was no cartoon shows, no, there was really nothing much going on, and we thought that was sort of the end of, yeah. of Turtles, and, um, and uh, we had, Peter and I had discussed a few times the opportunity to sell it to a larger company, so we both would be, you know, okay, let's both sell it and go, and, and he said, no, I think I'll, I'll hold on to it, so I said, well, buy my share out, and you can do what you want, I want to do more. Um, things like the heavy metal projects and some of my own personal projects. And so I ended up selling all my rights to him. He then, I think, uh, like five or six years later, sold all of his rights to Viacom. And then like that, yeah. a couple of years after that, when Viacom was relaunching their property, they called me <laughs> and said, do you want to come back and work on Turtles? And I was like, I love the Turtles, of course. So I, I could, that's when I started consulting on the new cartoon shows, the new movies. And since 2011, I've been working on the IDW comics. Um, well, what's that experience like? Because obviously, I think the animated series, the original animated series made such an impact. But mm. now that you see Turtle sort of being reinvented every... I've been... Uh, there was an animated series in the early th 2000s yep. and then a new animated series in 2012. Yeah. How does it feel to see that sort of find how how does it feel to see the turtles find a new audience every time is that something that you're aware of, that you, that you notice or oh yes no yeah. it was interesting because you know it's even because you know Peter and I worked on the original cartoon series all the way through 300 episodes and then when we did the live action series which we did Venus de Milo um, that series which I know everybody loves I do um, <laughs> I love I love Venus um, Peter actually took a sabbatical for a couple of years and I ran that series and the program from there. And then that was like 1999, I then sold my interest to Pete. And then Pete um, did the 2000 series, which I thought was a wonderful series. It was very edgy, yeah. very dark. I think that was around 2003. That was a great tie-in comic too, written by Peter David. And yes. Yeah, it was, yep. it was excellent actually. Yeah, because yeah, it, was, it was interesting too because um, you could, what was so great about that time period is that you could do that kind of a series then. You couldn't have done it five years before. Yeah. It was still too edgy for Saturday morning cartoon, but by the introduction of more um, intense um, video games and the audience is becoming more sophisticated at a younger audience. So I like the series very much. Um, and then Peter, um, that series stopped. And then I brought to the table, we did a movie in 2007. Um, with uh, Kevin Monroe directed it and I worked on that one um, as a hired gun and then we sold then Pete then sold everything and that's when sort of it went dormant for a number of years but what's been interesting is um, you know like you look at they brought me back in to work on all things turtles in 2011 and I look at my heart and um, where I wanted to be involved was the comic series the IDW comic series is the closest thing to the original black and white series. It's intended for an older audience. Um, so a lot of you folks that might have grown up the original cartoon show, the IDW comics are more in tune with your evolution of um, discovering the old Mirage comic books in the IDW series. But then I had the good fortune of working with, uh, <clears throat> I thought the 2012 Nickelodeon series was fantastic. Um, because not only was it um, very creative, we I, I very much the... Uh, Ciro Neely was the executive producer of the um, 2012 series and he grew up as a child in Philadelphia. His dad owned a pizza place so he ate, slept, 
breathe turtles, yeah. ate pizza, <laughs> drew turtles all the time. He lived he, the turtles' lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, he lived the turtles' lifestyle. But not in the sewers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he was, um, he worked on Super Hyper Monkey Force Team Go, I think it was called. Then he did Teen Titans, and then mm-hmm. from Teen Titans he went to Turtles. And, and so with his turtle episodes, I thought they were just really bizarre (laughs) they were intended for kids but they had lots of crazy themes and crazy ideas that's the good stuff (laughs) yeah you know um but then i started working then um so i consulted on that i wrote some episode i did the voice of one of the characters a cat made out of ice cream and then um they brought me in to work on the turtle movies which are which were a bit challenging they That's the the Michael Bay um, turtle movies, yeah. Yes, <laughs> those are the Michael Bay ones, and that was just it was a very different. It was, you know, because going back to almost to the question that you you started with is the seeing the different interpretations. I felt that the ones that worked were the ones that kept the aspect that we started at the beginning, which the turtles are kind of this weird adoptive family. Um, yeah. You have four mutant turtles that. You know, they were swimming around a glass terrarium until they got goop dumped on them and mutated and raised by a rat. And, um, you know, the adoptive sister with April and Casey. And so you had this very, um, but that was the heart and soul. It was all about family and you protect your family, whether it's um, your family, family or your adoptive friends as a family. And that was um, very present in so many of the successful series. Um, And, you know, what I thought that even with the Michael Bay movies, they still tried to keep that heart and soul, but um, they brought me in to consult on it, and my, my comments were the, the difference between an underdog that you want to believe in, whether it's um, like a Sarah Connor or a Ripley or a, someone that's your average person on the street that's going to save the world in this corner of the, uni- you know, this corner of the city because sure. it's an average person doing the right thing. If suddenly you have, you know, seven and a half foot giant bulletproof talking turtles with muscles on muscles that can throw around <laughs> shipping containers, you start losing. It, to me, it drifted to the analogy I mentioned about Superman early on. Yeah. It's Superman is a harder character to believe. Um, and uh, so that was, there was some difficult discussions during those times. Yeah. But I... am oh, sorry. No, it's something I just wanted to come back to because you mentioned those archetypical uh, dynamics between the turtles and then Splinter as sort of the mentor-student mm. uh, relationship. I think that's something a lot of people gravitated towards or could relate to. Is that something that you were consciously putting into the comics when you started, or is that or those ideas that sort of came later, like this is, this is what works now, we're going to focus more on these dynamics? It was a direct and blatant rip-off of Yoda. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, no, not blatant. But, no, but it was, um, you know, because that... Um, it was we like that i like that figure the um uh like the you know a good uh, a, uh, oftentimes a superior would have a mentor of some kind that would whether it be obi-wan kenobi or yoda but it was sort of splinter um or even you know probably um <laughs> wax on wax off yeah mr miyagi so yeah. i think it was that idea that you would again have this average person that would sort of you know um that would be trained by someone that, you know, they it would help show them the path into yeah. uh, this world. So it was sort of that fatherly figure that we thought that would yeah. show them the way and hopefully they choose the right direction. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, do, we're running short on time. So uh, does anyone else have a question for Mr. Eastman? So earlier we were speaking about Kamendi. And you did an issue in the Kamendi Challenge with Freddie Williams. So how was it? Because it's a bit like uh, closing the, the circle. You've been inspired by Kamendi, and now you're asked to do an issue on a homage series to, to Jack Kirby and Kamendi. So well, you know, what's funny, you know, because Kamendi, um, what's interesting is uh, I we did a Ghostbusters crossover with the Turtles, and then... I pitched to, because um, IDW, the publisher of Turtles, was working with DC Comics, so I pitched the idea of doing um, 
a Commandy Turtles crossover because I don't know if you remember we did a, uh, a one shot with Donatello, a single issue with Donatello, which was a tribute to Kirby. And so he created this character, Kirby, who created the doorway to this world. And so I went back and I pitched him this idea to say, you know, we don't have to bring Kirby back as a character, but um, I would love to have the chance for the Turtles to go into that world and meet Commandy. And I had this whole idea that was written. And DC basically was said, you know, that's stupid. Why do, nobody knows who Commandy is. Why don't you do a Turtles Batman crossover? <laughs> and we were like, we didn't think that was an option. Um, so luckily um, for us that um, James Tinian, who's here, if you haven't met James, he's such a fantastic person um, and writer. So he, James wrote the, the um, Batman Turtles crossover and then that was successful. We did the second one and we're working on the third one now. But throughout that process, I got to meet Freddie Williams. And so when it came up to Jack Kirby's 100th birthday, uh, they put together that project where one writer and one artist would do an issue of Commandy, and they would leave it at a cliffhanger at the end, if you haven't seen it. And then the next, a new writer and new artist would pick it up from the cliffhanger and keep going like this. And ours was issue nine, um, and Tom King was the writer, who's a fantastic writer as well. So, so it was nice to do the whole um, Commandy thing for one issue. And I still want to do the Turtles Commandy crossover, though. <laughs> so I'll go yell at DC one more time. <laughs> So I have no more voice. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not sure everyone heard of it, but uh, I think there's a new movie um, project. Yes. And are you able to talk about it already or not at all? Well, it's, it's interesting because they don't tell me, you know, cause, because I have no ownership, so they don't have to tell me anything. Okay. And so when I, I read about it that in the... Daily Variety, they had announced that somebody was writing a new Turtle movie. That's the first time I'd heard anything right. about it. Um, but so, I, you know, I don't know because it's very, you know, I've gone back to Nickelodeon and I've said, because uh, they control it, because uh, after the Turtles Batman comics um, were very successful, they did a tur they're doing a Turtles Batman cartoon show, which um, I think is coming out in April. Um, yeah. It's fantastic, by the way. It's very um, edgy. Um, it's more intended to, to me, it's like for all ages, but more geared more towards um, an older audience. Because um, that was my idea to Nickelodeon every time I would talk to him. I'd say that, you know, Michael Bay took the turtles down a, a path that was not the best choice. You know, I love that we finally get to see Bebop and Rocksteady and Krang and, and things. But, um, you know, you have two split audiences with the turtles if you can do some like when Warner Brothers finally came out with um, adapting Frank Miller's Dark Knight as a cartoon or Batman Year One, I said, you can support both those audiences. So I said, you should do one intended specifically for the older audience, and then you can have both. And so then they came out with this. So I don't know. It's the same producers that worked on the 2014, 2016 movie. So I've heard nothing. I don't know Let's what they're going to do with it. So I have my fingers crossed. Yeah, me too. Um, I think we're all hoping for... Um maybe not rated R, but darker, <laughs> even, it, it was not rated R, the first one, 1990, but Steve it was, Barron, um, Steve it, they, it was so close, but it was PG, PG? I think it was PG, because yeah, it was, they, I don't think they had come up with PG-13 yet. The, 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 um, the foot soldier that got beat by Tatsu, yeah. <laughs> he was supposed to be dead, and yeah. he scraped, right? Yes. And, but they made him, like, uh, no, he's breathing, he's still breathing. Yeah, they, he, they, they, they they cut this, they mm -hmm. censored this, and they, no, we don't want dead guy. Yes. Let's hope it's more sensitive and with more um, um, vulnerable turtles. Yes. Not like superhuman in the last one, like vulnerable Raphael in the first one got beat. You know? I think the, you know, it's like, That's I think the audience would support more realistic. that. You could definitely Darker do that. Darker so. and more realistic. That would be great. Oh, fingers crossed. Give, give your <laughs> words, man. <laughs> tell them, tell them. You. Just do a Casey Jones movie. <laughs> <laughs> goes. Casey Jones goes nuts. They meet up with Deadpool and they go. Raphael, Casey Jones, and Deadpool. Hey, just one uh, question. I was curious. Uh, how did you come up with the names of the four Italian painters? Was your first idea, or before there were some other name, then you changed it? Yeah. 
<laughs> no, no, it was um, I was a uh, um, a weird kid in that I loved history and I especially loved art history and uh, Leonardo when I was growing it was a Leonardo da Vinci it was a uh, a hero to me in so many ways and uh, um, study uh, so much of the the history of that so even when I was in when I was graduating high school um, and my in 1980. I did a large mural in the school of my tribute to Leonardo da Vinci. Um, so I was very passionate about this. And so we um, we were coming up with the uh, origin story and what do we call the characters. We first thought, um, you know, maybe traditional Asian names seemed appropriate because of the, martial, the Asian history involved in the story. But, you know, if you're talking teenage mutant ninja turtles, it didn't seem silly enough. So then we thought, you know, maybe American names, Doug, Bob, Steve. Still not silly enough, and so I just blurted out, uh, "What about uh, Leonardo da Vinci, Leonardo and Michelangelo, and Michelangelo's uh, student Raphael?" And Pete laughed, uh, and we were like, "Yeah." So that's we knew we were onto something, and I always love telling the stories because we had a discussion for about two weeks because I liked uh, Bernini as a sculptor better than Donatello, <laughs> and so Donatello was almost named Bernini. Thank you. But we ended up with Donatello. It worked out good. So I love that stuff. Any more for any more? Okay. Then I'll um, thank you very much. Oh my uh, thank you. Kevin Eastman, uh, thank you, Tony. Thank you, audience, for your uh, kind attention. Uh, have a good evening. See you next time. Yes. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Um, I just want to wrap up by saying this is the second time that we've been to Brussels, I mean Brussels, sorry. Second time we've been to Belgium, first in Brussels and then here. Um, and you guys have been fantastic, awesome. You stand in those lines, you make us so, feel so welcome, so loved. We appreciate you so very much. Uh, we're going to be here signing with you all day tomorrow as well. So if we get a chance to see you tomorrow, come by and say hi. If not, thanks for spending time with me today. And, uh, and hopefully we'll see you again soon. Cheers. Kawabanga. Cheers.